Okay, welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're starting up another episode on Jackson. The last episode we dealt with his childhood, some stories about his formation, uh, and then we got into his marriage a little bit and his move to Nashville. So we're picking up pretty much at the beginning of his military career. Um, he is in Nashville. This is the early 1800s. He's established himself as a young lawyer, and do you want to pick up from there? Sure. Um, so, the... Uh, I'm sorry, he's a lawyer, and also he became a planter. The... Philosophical orientation of the American West. All right, and this is Nashville back in the early part of the 19th century, was to expand the American Republic to the West. Now, I'll keep saying American. And again, I can hear people saying, well, what about the Native Americans? What about the uh, people in the other parts of America? You know, and there's, there's two American continents, North and South America, and other people who are saying that I'm only looking at a segment of American history. But I want to remind the listeners that officially and ideologically, America was an invention. It was a a political conception that came out of the European Enlightenment And it was carried out in a way that whites, Christian whites, and Christian white males were the true Americans. Women and children obviously were necessary for uh, procreation, but had very proscribed civil rights. Women couldn't vote. Women couldn't own property. Women couldn't have money. Children were barely above chattels. African-Americans, even if they were free, were not, were often disenfranchised, were not automatically extended full citizenship rights. The Indians were viewed as separate countries altogether. And the way that the Indians occupied their various territories was by right of conquest. I mean, the Indians did not have clear national boundaries. They didn't have nation states. They didn't have legislatures. They didn't have courts. They didn't even have armies. So essentially the Indians uh, had villages. The village extended itself out into the hinterland of the village That was their territory when the areas got fouled up or when the land uh, started losing its fertility or they ran out of firewood or whatever happened to them, they packed up and they moved somewhere else. Or if the population got to be too much, groups would would break off and move somewhere else. Well, I think, I mean, the way you're describing it, 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 you can see why so many people are resentful of the period now. Because if you're just talking about you know, European 
men, I mean, it's only, uh, I mean, what percentage of the population is it? It's a small percentage. Well, even then, you know, talking about white males, and a European man would be an immigrant. I meant white so, males. So, and even even among white males, it was uh, landed landed white males. Yeah, yeah. You know, you had to have there was a property requirement. You had to own real estate. Okay. So even you know when you look at white males, it's it's a very small sliver of the population. This was why. Well, that's the same way it was in Europe. If you think about it, because so many people yeah, of course, serves, right? of course, because you know this was where they got their ideas, and and this is why there was such an impetus for land owning and for farming, you know, for having real estate. Because it gives you a stake in the Because society. it gives you that status. And, you know, they had big families back then. You know, if you have, you know, seven kids, five kids, nine kids, you know, six, which were, which was common. Uh, and say like half of them were boys. You had sons and it was like, we're going to split up the farm and keep splitting it up, or we're going to move out into these what undeeded areas yeah, and, and take it the same way the people there who are there now sure, have taken it. makes it. sense. It's a way of establishing yourself in the world. But my question, if you have, if you're a landowner, right, and you're a, uh, I, mean, I don't want to say patriarch, but you, you're a family head of a household, and you have, let's say, six kids, and four of them are boys, and they turn 18... They're not given the vote until they they themselves. They have they have to get on. They have to get their own deed. Okay. Okay. So it it wasn't even hereditary. And what I mean, I'm sure millions or yeah, millions of men lived and died without the vote. Yes. Well, it wasn't it wasn't that big a number because it was a short period of time. What seventeen? You know, seventeen eighty nine to eighteen twenty four. Yeah. Yeah. Which one? Eighteen twenty eight. Twenty eight. So, I mean, it could have been a million men. You know, we had, what, maybe six million in the whole country then? So it was maybe a million who voted and, you know, maybe three million men. So okay. maybe maybe it was double the number of who were disenfranchised to the number who were enfranchised. And, these, and this is just, this is just these, white males. And these disenfranchised men, what year was Lincoln born? Mm, 09. 1809? Wow, yeah. early. Yeah. So... Hold on, i got to be sure of that, because he was killed in 65, he was 56. So that would be 09, right? Yeah. Okay. So when he was a teen, he didn't... Did he see the prospect of being able to vote or no? Yeah, by the time... I mean, because because Lincoln's beau ideal in politics was Jackson's great rival, Henry Clay. Oh, he thought Clay... Lincoln loved Clay. Yes. But Clay was not for universal... Uh, Clay is such a wily... Right, we'll get the Clay. Uh, All right, we'll get the figure. Yeah, we'll get the Clay. All right, so you're saying, so we have this kind of small scope, um, hier- hierarchical society. Um, hierarchical and oligarchic. Would you say tyrannical? That was that was their fear because they recognized very clearly that the oligarchy was small and that it would be easy for a clique to form within the oligarchy and take over the country. And that's essentially what they viewed as having having happened in Britain during the eighteen fifties 
in the 1860 or I'm sorry, the 1750s and the 1760s with the Hanoverian dynasty. Mm-hmm. And obviously they rebelled against it and formed the, the American Republic. So they, they, they were very, very lively to that prospect that uh, it could become tyrannical. And when we look at the uh, opposition to Jackson's presidency, which was very vociferous, very widespread, very vocal. Um, they call themselves Whigs uh, because they cast Jackson in the role of a monarchical figure and themselves as the anti-monarchical party. It's funny because Jackson has this view, of, and we'll get more into it, but Jackson has this view of universal, or at least... Let's yes, universal, universal male suffrage, suffrage universal but, male suffrage. But at the same time, he's known for order somewhat autocratic tendencies. But he was a general. Right. So going I mean, back... It's a paradox. Going, going back to... Yeah. Going back... You know, now he's a landowner. He's an attorney. He's one of the leading citizens. So he's got his vote. And... and oh, definitely. And they're viewing... And pushing for that. Yes. They're viewing the country as being a country which should expand westward. And, you know, if you look at the map, Tennessee goes all the way out to the Mississippi. Can I, can I take a second now? He's, in 67, he was born, right? Yes, 1767. So by 1803, when he buys the Hermitage, right. I imagine that's when he got landed, or he was landed a year before that or something? Uh, he might have had some little uh, freehold somewhere. He's already in his mid-30s. Yes. Which is a grown... That's your... You're yeah, yeah, you're, you're yourself. You're yourself. So, it, he does a lot late in life. Yeah. I mean, more of his stuff is late in life yeah. than early in life. Yeah. Why he takes so long to get started? Yeah, he was dirt poor. I mean, literally dirt poor. He had nothing. So, he's just... He had to, he had to, you know, he had to work his way up. Okay. And it takes time to accumulate. Okay. So, uh, after he bought his land... Uh, he was in the capital. Now, but Ten- he wasn't going to get his land and rest on his laurels. Well, I'll get to that. So Tennessee is basically an extension west of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. All right. It, it, I mean, if you draw lines to the west along the northern boundary of North Carolina, and the southern boundary is tilted, but you could extend the southern boundary of Tennessee east and basically, you're in northern South Carolina and North Carolina, you know, the, the northern Carolina country. So below that, in the states that we now refer to as the Gulf Squadron, mm-hmm. states that are Mississippi, uh, bounded in the south by the Gulf of Mexico, the uh, Indian nations, what we call the civilized tribes, were still in control. Now, when you say civilized tribes, how civilized were they? So, they had... Choctaw? Yeah, Choctaw, Seminole, Cherokee. I can't remember all the the names. There were like six of them. And they had a degree of tribal organization that would be comparable to pre-monarchical feudal Europe. Okay. Okay. That's pretty good. Were the Iroquois nations at the same level? Uh, 
they actually were a model. I mean, the so-called Albany model for the American Confederation mm -hmm. was based on the Iroquois Confederation. So they actually had a, a proto-democratic or proto-republican, smaller republican form of government. Okay. The, the, the southern tribes never attained quite that, but they definitely had... Uh, You know, there were individuals. There were individuals who had particular prowess, sagacity, astuteness, and they were viewed as the leaders. And, and they were not hereditary titles. You know, the, there was a council, and the, the the men would talk to each other, and certain people would arise as the leaders. And it appears that you know, if it was a guy who was more combative, he would be like the military leader. Somebody who was more interested in agriculture or something like that would be more the leader about the harvests and storing the surplus and so on like that. Somebody who's better at interpersonal relations might be the one who dealt with the domestic affairs, you know, marriages, mm -hmm. uh, disputes about property okay. and so on. So they, 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 they were very organized. They were very civilized. Um, their, their language structure was uh, formed And I'm going to say solidified, you know, it's not exactly the right term, but they, they didn't have the sort of uh, slippery, formless grammar and syntax that we see with a lot of tribal uh, peoples. I mean, because of the contact with the Europeans, their, their syntax and language more codified. The vocabulary was, was more set. You think that the, tribal people have, have slippery language? Yeah, I because would that, I would think that they, I, what I've heard from linguists is that all languages are are able to do all functions. Of yes, but in in, in a tribal language, it's it's more amorphous because there's not an academy or a oh, written set of, of like rules. French, you're talking about like the, the way the French have this royal academy of what's what's good French and what's not good, or French. or even standard English. I mean, you but think of all the enforced by. Well, every fourth grade teacher in America. Okay. I mean, I don't think Jackson spoke standard English by that account. I don't think I don't think Jackson spoke standard English either. I mean, he probably spoke some variant of Welsh English. Okay. You know, but um, the Indians at this point were, you know, I mean, what we might view as a pre-industrial society. I just wonder how inflected the language was. I don't know that much about it. Be interesting to know. Um. No, I just I just don't know that much about it. Uh, okay, a lot so, of, a lot of the Indian languages had a lot of syllables. Well, you know, very long words. Okay, maybe they were like Germans compound words. I think it was more that they used a, a series of images, like in the nouns. I think the nouns was like an image that was like then, instead of forest, they would say many trees or something. Yeah, like something like that. You know, many trees with broad leaves, or you know, many trees, many trees with the acorns falling from them, or something. Well, you know, also that more primitive languages have uh, fewer words, but right, you could imagine that if they're describing something, they would have to. Make compound words, like, right? Exactly. Like a exactly. I mean, would be a they, 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 they don't they don't have a word for God, so they would say something like you Father know that which is eternal, oh, okay. which uh, empowers life or okay. something. You know, I mean. Well, what they call the gun a fire stick or a who, fire the, snake? who the hell knows? Right. You know, I mean, we tend to 
infantilize their language. I don't think it's infantilized. I actually think that it's nice. Like, the idea that, that like, in, even in Spanish, the idea that sky, their word for sky is also their word for heaven. To me, it's, it's not more... I mean, you, in a way, it is less scientific, but it's also more holistic, mm-hmm. which I think is helpful mm-hmm. because there's a reason that all cultures pretty much have thought of heaven as being in the sky and right. hell as being right. in the earth. Right. It tells you something about the way those images are right. are understood by humans. So, so to go back to the Indians, um, Sequoia, mm-hmm. the Cherokee, excuse me, the Cherokee chief is the only known person to have devised an alphabet. Okay. And he devised a Cherokee alphabet, I believe in like the 1830s. So they were at that level. You know, they, I mean, they were reading the Bible. They wanted to have it in their native languages. So they needed an alphabet. And later on, there's some dispute about missionaries too, right? Well, there's a lot of disputes about missionaries. Okay. So, any case, uh, the areas to the south of Tennessee were under Spanish sovereignty. Sovereignty? Sovereignty. The Spaniards were nominally in control. Did they have people on the ground? Well, this is a question, because Mexico fought their revolution in 1818. Okay. So... We're talking about a time when the revolutionary fervor in Spanish America was growing. Okay. The Haitian Revolution occurred in 1804. Okay. Which was a real shock. A nasty revolution, too. Right? To the Americans. Because these were African American, sl- or Afri- well, African American, African Asian, whatever you call it, but slaves of African descent. Rebelling, sure. So that makes the southern against yeah. the whites. Yeah, so, sure. so you know, it was very important in Tennessee not just to gain the land, but to gain a buffer zone. Okay, let me ask you a question about the Haitian Revolution since we're there. It's this period. Does does now I know that the Haitian Revolution ended up being difficult for the Haitians, but was it? Oh, was it more violent than the American Revolution? Oh, just, hell yes. Was just seen that way because... No, I mean, they, they... I mean, well, first of all, the... Or was it just seen that way because the whites wanted to care? The French them. were, like, way outnumbered. Yeah. I mean, you know, in in the places where the French were the most numerous, they are outnumbered 10 or 11 to 1 oh, okay. by the Haitians. And in the back country, I mean... God Did knows, they know what you know, was coming? Unless they were totally blind, deaf, and dumb, okay. and and yes, there are very you know well documented incidents of the whites being executed. You know okay. whether they were tortured in the you know graphic manner that we see in some of the what literature. Was the, name of the, the leader of the revolution? Um, oh, uh, Toussaint. Okay. Um, and he was a military genius. I mean, he defeated really? he, de- he defeated the, the divisions that Napoleon sent as the president of the rebellion. Okay. Um, How many days did it take Napoleon to get the divisions out? Not long. I mean, okay. Napoleon was was very accurate about that. And you know, when we read Jefferson's correspondence about that, I mean, we can see that the, the, the deep uh, ambiguity he had about his his feelings towards it, because on the one hand. 
they were rebelling against the French, who he viewed as the acme of civilization. On the other hand, it was clearly a popular revolt. So he had to... So he really had to, he was really conflicted. With Jackson, there was no such conflict. I mean, it was obvious, you know, the dark masses are rising against the whites. This could happen here. I mean, the Indians probably still outnumbered the whites. Did you see the racial aspect to it or not? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, <laughs> But he also that? respected the popular instinct of it. He, so that's funny because normally Jackson has a sense for the popular instinct and here you're seeing Jefferson had more of a sense for the popular instinct. I mean, Jefferson recognizes slaves are people. And Jackson didn't? We don't know. Okay. I mean, Jackson might have recognized that slaves and Indians were people, but he thought that the, the culturally they were completely unassimilable, unassimilable and completely... Just, just unassimilable. So should be should have their own. So, design. so in in the case of, of African Americans, I mean Jackson sincerely believed, and I'm not saying this is a good belief, but this is what he thought in you know his his most elevated view of things that they were an inferior race and that our controlling them was there was beneficial to them. And where did he get these views from? Just everywhere. Was there a minority view, even a strain of a minority view in the South? Well, you mentioned missionaries. So there were missionaries coming into into the Southern states, uh, promulgating ideas of racial equality. I mean, Rhode Island was founded essentially on the ideas of denominational and racial equality. So there were people who had ideas that the races were equal, but they were a minority. And they were persecuted in the south and in the north, but the abolitionists by now were starting to kick up in the north. But they were—I mean—they also had their presses burned. They were tarred and feathered. You know, I mean, it's funny because you—it it was not easy being an abolitionist. You have a guy like a populist type where he really seems to be interested in the rights of the poor and the common man, like Jackson. White. Okay, yes. But he seems to be interested in the common man, right? Right. But then he has a negative view towards other races, right? He's like almost, I don't want to say xenophobic because all the baggage with that word, but he's almost xenophobic towards other races. Then you have a guy like John Quincy Adams who's firmly entrenched in the establishment, but yet he is fervent in his personal beliefs against slavery. So if we were just looking at two people, Jackson and Adams, we could say, what is Adams or what is Jackson compensating for? What events occurred early in his life that may require him to suppress the legitimate rights of colored people or dark skinned people, people of color? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of things poverty. Mm-hmm. Lack of formal education, the constant sense that he's an imposter. In other words, you mean in, in society. His, his economic insecurity meant that he he was really interested in in scratching out a place for white poor men like himself to be able to live in society. Yes, on decent terms. Yes, and he thought that the only way to do that would be to make enough room, and it, that the room that he could scratch out for him and people like him wouldn't be able to include room for blacks or Indians. Well, they also needed labor. But why couldn't the whites do the labor? Because 
a lot of the labor was considered like just below the station of the yeoman. But Jack Jefferson had white farmers at Monticello. Not all. I mean, he probably had more slave farmers, but he did have white free farmers. But they were they were like itinerant farmers or something. They were like farming. They weren't like clearing the land. They weren't like just gathering in the crops. Uh, they so weren't the real just manual reading. stuff was below the station of white people. Well, it was part of farming, but you know, and, 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 so it's, and, like it's, and it's, it's, it's it's really hard to imagine. It okay, to I'm imagine. a farmer, but like my wife or my kids should be the ones who do the weed. It's very strange. It's like I'm in the farm and I can pick an apple, but I can't pull a weed. Right. But how could you divide all of that in your mind? Well, that's why it's such a, a, a difficult psychological and political problem. That's not because, the only reason. Because, well, that's not the only reason. But, you know, how can I have a philosophy, a political orientation, a political ideology that says, I believe in yeoman farmers, but then so much of farming is something that servile classes of people should do. And, and I also am curious about that because as you get further out west, I don't think that slavery was a given the same way it was in the Carolinas. No. Like in Tennessee, maybe the farmers had to do all that stuff. Well, Tennessee, until you get over by the Mississippi, until yeah. you get really far west, isn't suited for the kind of agriculture. Well, you do get towards the Well, then it gets to be a lot like the, the, the Gulf Squadron. You know, it's flat, it's hot, there's a lot of rainfall. So that was slave area. Yeah. But what about north in Ohio? Who did the work there? Or Kentucky? Well, area? I mean, they definitely had slaves in Kentucky. They probably northern had Ohio. slaves in southern Ohio. What about northern Ohio by the Great Lakes? Well, you know, then they had immigrants. Who From where? Ireland, well, not Ireland, Germany, Scandinavia. So the Germans were, immigrants were allowed to do the... Well, the Germans were more, I mean, they. I don't think they ever had that idea that the farmer didn't do all the farm work. I think the Germans always thought, you know, I'm up to my knees and shit. And, you know, uh, spreading fertilizer. I'm standing on the back of a wagon, you know, with a pitchfork. That's, that's throwing what shit seems into the field. Like, seems like, I guess, somehow, Jackson, I mean, Jefferson must have imbued the American mind with the idea of, like, the... The landed gentry not doing his farm work. It's the whole Whig idea. It's the whole Whig formulation. You know, coming over from Britain. You know, the you know the the the, the landowners are these aristocratic types, and the yeoman, the yeoman farmer, is you know in charge of the farm, but he's also you know doing all the blacksmithing and you know reading books about and directing people. So he's know. more of a contract or craftsman and he has his laborers for him. Something like, like that. He's not farming the way a German farmer is on he's, the land. He's not like, he's not like a European who came Peasant up from farmer. the surf, from the surf, surf class. class. And, you know, so it's like, Oh, you know, I used to belong to the land. Now the land belongs to me. Woo! What does that change? You know, now I get the deed. But <laughs> you the yeoman farmer isn't an aristocrat. He's not an aristocrat, but he, he, he... And what was he... What did he exist as in Europe before, between the serf and the aristocrat? Where was his position? He was a... Well, I mean, again, and you have to think in England, 
there was also a conquest. Norman conquest. So, so there was, you know, a, a, an, ethnic, yes, yeah. an ethnic separation between the aristocracy and So it must have a French ideal then. It, well, it might go back to the Normans. It might be something that was endemic to the British culture. And that was in I mean, the British always had the Irish to do their picking too, no? Yeah. All right. Let's. We. I mean, we didn't really get into the. Um, we didn't really much get into his military service. Can Can you at least kick us off so we can start the next episode? All right. So, so, so we have this problem in, in, of the Indians. We We have the problem. Well, we have the we have the challenge of the Indians. I don't mean it a problem like they're existing, but what I mean is, if the South is going to continue to expand. Well, and it's going to be secure. It's, it's, it's a dual problem. A, you need to have slave states. So you need territory where slavery is economically sustainable. Because mm-hmm. you have to keep the balance in the Senate okay. between the slave states and the free states. Protect slavery. Because secession talk is already kicking off. Yeah. By I mean, the 1820s, maybe yeah, not in the 1820s. Well, even, even during the period leading up to the Revolutionary War, New England attempted a secession. Revolutionary War? Uh, the War of 1812, oh, sorry. Okay. Second Revolutionary War. Okay. Uh, the War of 1812, New England attempted a secession. New England? Against, because when, when Jefferson imposed the embargo, on that hurt. that hurt the New England mercantilists, and they wanted to secede and resume trade with Europe. Okay. So... So sectionalism is a big but how thing. Did, why would he have done a, a embargo if the South needed to sell their cotton? They sold it to the North? They, yeah, they could sell it to the North, yeah. or they could just keep it. And, and the, the big slave, the big, big cotton-producing states weren't in the, in the, in the Union yet. So, so for Jackson, in this period of life, mid-30s... Uh, well, he's pushing 40s. Pushing 40 late 18 aughts or, you know, sure, yeah. 200 years ago or 210 years ago, um, the need to expand into the current uh, Western Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas area is driven by sectionalism. So the South needs to expand uh-huh. and get more slave states. Sure is driven partially by racism that we wanted to have a white Republic and driven just by the expanding population and the need for more territory. Were they going to ignore Florida? Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But what was their initial thought? Well, they had to secure Florida, but they were just interested in the panhandle part, you know, like Jacksonville up. They didn't want this. Yeah, it was just a swampy marsh. Just alligators. Yeah. Disneyland, Disney world. Yeah. And um, to secure the secure that land against the European powers, okay, because Spain. That's why they wanted the Panhandle. Well, that was that that whole strip because that was under Span under Spanish rule. So they wanted they wanted to get the Spaniards. Did they know how they were going to get it? Yeah, they were going to march in and take it. Oh, okay. So they had no issue with that. So that was how Jackson became a general. Because, well, let's not get that far yet. All right. Because we got to go. Into but no, they had no problem with marching down there and taking it. Okay. All right. So that's the scope. And Jackson, Jackson knew that he was going to join the military and do it. I mean, he he had no military service in his twenties. He had no military service. He had no military background. But he could persuade 
and order men. Okay. He was a good organizer. All right, so let's get into, in our next episode, we'll get into his beginning of his career. Uh, we'll get into the War of 1812. We'll get into the Florida okay. thing, etc. All right, so do you have anything you want to add before we sign off? No, we can sign off. All right, thanks again for listening to this presidential podcast.